This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. I am thrilled you're here. If I'd known you were coming, I would have prepared the dungeon. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! Hey, I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. And I'm Trevor. And, and we're the, the Boo, Boo Crew! Welcome to episode 73. If you're listening to this at time of release, the Adams Family animated film is in theaters everywhere October 11th in Real 3D and Dolby Cinema. We are joined by one of the directors and voice actors, Conrad Vernon, to tell you why this is a can't-miss, spectacular fun event that is an essential Halloween season experience. He talks about working with talent like Charlize Theron and Bette Midler in the vocal booth and bringing their own original interpretations of these iconic characters to life in an all-new and fresh way. Hear about what went into the design of the spectacular Adams Family house and how it's made to feel like you are right there with them. Then, if you are local to SoCal or plan on being out here soon, something creepy is going on at LA's Natural History Museum starting October 10th, running until April 19th. An exhibit called The Natural History of Horror. It explores the science behind the original Universal Monsters with rare movie props, film footage, and hands-on activities. We hang out with Beth Whirling and Sarah Crawford from the museum to unlock its secrets. This is the story you've heard about. Talked about the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. This is Conrad Vernon. You are snapping your fingers to the creepy, kooky, and altogether ooky Boo Crew. The Boo Crew, the freshest cuts of new stuff. Here's Sweet Screams. Get out. It's hideous. It's horrible. It's home. Is that really as tight as you can make it? Well. Hello. Wednesday. Don't forget to kick your father goodnight. Yes, mother. 
Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is an award-winning writer, director, producer, animator, and voice actor whose work is almost definitely part of your very DNA. One of his first projects was the legendary Ralph Bakshi's Cool World in the early 90s. He's been a storyboard artist on The Simpsons, wrote and storyboarded for Ren and Stimpy, co-directed Shrek 2, one of the top-grossing animated films of all time, and DreamWorks' most successful in its entire history. His other directing credits include The Amazing Monsters vs. Aliens, Madagascar 3, and Sausage Party. He's lent his voice to those as well as to the Gingerbread Man and countless other characters in the Shrek films, Boss Baby, Flushed Away, Gravity Falls, and more. He's put pencil to paper as an artist for movies like Ants and Trolls. He is the co-director of the new animated film The Addams Family in theaters everywhere October 11th. He can also be heard in the iconic role of Lurch as well as at least three others. We are so honored to welcome Conrad Vernon to the show. Yeah! Hi. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, man. Sure. And congrats on the here. film. We're psyched. I, I can't believe that you have a podcast in this house. You need to see it, <laughs> not hear it. It's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. So I want to go back to the beginning. And do you remember your first experience with the horror genre, whether it was a film or a TV show or a book? The very first horror movie experience scared the living shit out of me. <laughs> I had a friend desperately wanted to see the first Alien movie. Oh, was in the theater and it was a double feature with a movie called Alice Sweet Alice. Do you know, oh, yes. do you know this I know movie? that one, yes. So we walked in kind of at the beginning of Alice Sweet Alice. I was in fourth grade and watching that movie, it was the first horror movie I ever saw and it scarred me for life. It, it, it branded my brain with something that was just terrifying. I think me and my friend actually dumped our popcorn and stuck the popcorn in our heads. <laughs> and then after that, I was like notably shaken. And then Alien came on. Oh, right? Yeah, that was just the appetizer. Now it's yeah, time for the main and course. then Alien was like, there were things in there. I mean, the one thing that always stands out in the movie Alien for me was when the alien busts out of John Hurt's chest yeah. and you hear a woman off screen go, oh God. <laughs> and it's just like that was like, it, it just it just completely scarred me. And this is for my friend's birthday. After we got done watching those movies, we got into my friend's parents' van and they dropped us off at our houses. And my parents were at a party. This was in Washington State at the end of a long walk through the woods. Of course. And I asked my mom's, my friend's mom, I said, will you drop me off at the front door? And she goes, no, I've got a ton of kids to drop off. Just get out and go. It's right there. <laughs> no So way. I had to take like a literal like four or five minute walk down a spooky trail through the woods to this house with all this stuff playing in your head right? exactly and i was like literally i showed up at this party that my parents were at and i walked through it and my mom was like oh god what's wrong and i she said i was gray and sweaty and shaking <laughs> wow did you end up taking that obsession with you further than that did you go and discover other horror films on your own did it become something that you ended up liking a lot yeah well i, I mean but what happened eventually was i said i love these movies but i don't like the way they make me feel afterwards i too scared too scared so i started getting obsessed with them and saying i want to get over my fear of them so i can enjoy them more and the more i watched and the more i learned about how they make them which i was really interested in uh reading fangoria magazine and all that kind of stuff the less i was afraid the more i was intrigued and then when i saw evil dead 2 yes i saw that and i f i saw that you could mix comedy and horror and it was like a great mixture for me and that's when i just like went all in and that was like an early high school when i saw that on 
a beta tape, I think. That's when I was just like, okay, I'm a huge horror fan. What came first for you? Did you start drawing? Were you an artist first and then getting into the director part of it? Or how did that Yeah, that I mean, I'd been drawing since I was a kid. I was a huge Mad Magazine fan. Mm. And I drew right out of Mad Magazine. Went into graphic arts first. That kind of bored me. Did not even think of animation as a career until I was looking at six years at uh, Long Beach State as a graphic designer, which I did not want to be. And I said, why am I going to go to college for six years to do something I don't want to do? So I, I took a chance and just picked up the phone and called Disney Studios front desk. And, really? And said, how do you do this? The receptionist, luckily, said, well, a lot of the guys here go to this place called CalArts. And so I just picked up the phone right after I hung it up and applied to CalArts and luckily turned my portfolio in and got in and the rest is kind of history. What a cool story. So how did you make the transition from working in the animation department on film to actually taking a director's role? Like you said, I started at Cool World and then I got into TV for about five years where I was just writing and boarding for multiple TV shows and then wanted to get into features. And so I worked on a feature that never got made, but I worked with Spike Jones on a movie called Harold the Purple Crayon. Wow. And that was going to be animation and live action mixed. It was right before he did being John Malkovich. Okay. That got shelved. That was when I was uh, reading Variety one day and saw that there was a new animation studio starting up and their first film was going to be a Woody Allen animated film. And I was like, I got to work here. And that's when I applied to DreamWorks and that film was Ants. And I didn't get in at first. You know, because they were doing Prince of Egypt. And when they saw my artwork, they was like, this doesn't match Prince of Egypt. This is way too silly. So they sent it up to a place called Pacific Data Images at PDI up in Northern California. And they looked at my silly stuff and they said, oh, we really like this guy. So I went up, moved up north to San Francisco and worked on Ants there. So I was a board artist and a writer for Ants. And then I went on to Shrek, the first movie, wound up uh, writing and boarding for that. That's when Jeffrey tapped me to direct the first Madagascar. Okay. And I was on there for about eight months and then he pulled me off that to direct the second Shrek instead. What does it look like to direct an animated feature? Because there's a lot of different aspects of an animated feature, obviously, right? There's the <laughs> art and all that design and character design and creation of that. And then yeah. there's the voiceover sessions. Where does the role of a director of an animated film kind of fall? You kind of have to learn all aspects of making an animated film. I mean, I was always interested in learning, not just storyboarding and writing, but I got into learning about the layout process, which is the camera work, the animation process. I knew how to animate animate with drawings, but I didn't know anything about, you know, animating on a computer. And then the lighting and then the effects and then, then how the cloth and hair are done and, you know, the music and the dialogue and the sound effects, the mix, all that kind of stuff. You just kind of dove in and started learning all those aspects. Jeffrey really liked what I was writing for the movies and how I was visualizing the movies and how I was, you know, finding a tone for them. And so he put me in and, and then just I just kind of dove in on the job and learned all these different aspects. You know, as a director, you're overseeing every department. All those departments I just mentioned are all kind of moving forward at the same time. Exactly. So you're just, you got to just keep this real clear vision in your head about what you want for the movie. Wow. So are people just constantly showing you, okay, this is what I've got today. This is what I've drawn. This is the scene. You're like, okay, check that out. Okay, great. Oh, we got a voiceover session over here. We're going to take care of that. So you're everywhere. Yeah. 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 I mean, your days are just filled. You know, it can get tedious after a while. Sure. Your day 
days are filled with, you know, 9.30 to 10, storyboard review, 10 to 11, layout review, 11.30 to da 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 It goes on, you know, animation is every day at the same time, layout's the same day, or every day at the same time, lighting's the same time every day, and you're just boom, 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 going through. So. Gosh. Is there any obstacles that occur while doing an animated film that's different than something that would be live action? You're not on set lighting a set, waiting for your setups to be done, and you're not in the moment working with the actors. Everything that's spontaneous about working in a live action set takes weeks or months to do. Yeah, it's so much more complicated. (laughs) And some people love that, and some people don't love it. You know, some people like that spontaneity of being on set and watching something spark on camera, and some people like having control over every single frame of the film. Right. All the way through the process. But you never know what kind of obstacles are going to pop up when you're making one of these. Uh, It's always been different. But most of the obstacles are either technical, like we found we can't do that, but we end up doing it anyway. Yeah. Remember on Shrek 2, taking the hairnet off of Prince Charming and waving his hair back and forth was impossible. But, you know, the technical people came through and made it look beautiful. It was the first time anyone had done hair like that. And that's the thing, right? Now that kind of sets a precedent for how people do things in the future, right? You're inventing constantly. Because you're spending $2 million on on hair. That's right. (laughs) So, but but luckily, unfortunately, the technical people always go, good, we figured out hair. And then in the next movie, they go, now can we want to run fingers through it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Can't you just be happy with this? That was a beautiful scene, though. I I remember. Yeah, no, terrific movies. So why was it time to go back and revisit The Addams Family? I don't know if there was a specific reason that we actually went back to revisit them. When I came on board, Gail Berman had brought me in to meet with MGM, and I sat down with everybody, and they pitched me the idea of doing The Addams Family. I wasn't working at the time, so uh, I, I would just finish Sausage Party, and I said, well, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll sit down and I'll develop it for you. <clears throat> you know, so that way when you, I'm done, you have a fully formed package that you can take to a studio and actually get the movie done. Sure. So I worked with the writer, uh, Matt Lieberman. And the one thing that really was daunting starting this out was the question you asked, why, why are we doing the Adams family for the umpteenth time? And how are we going to give a reason for making this? Sure. No, I don't want to just take IP and throw it up on the screen. I always have to say, well, you've got to come up with a story that only these characters would be living between what Matt and I cracked eventually was in the climate that we live in today with the immigration stuff going on and everything. We thought this would be kind of a great way to tell an immigrant story with this family. Because when we went back to look at all of Charles Adams old cartoons, they didn't specifically say where any of these people were from. You know, some of his cartoons look like they were from you know, a Dickensian time. And some of them look like they might've been from, you know, 1930s New York, but they could have been from Transylvania or they could have been from France or they could have been from anywhere. There was really no specific place that any of them were from. And they look slightly European anyway. So we thought, well, this could be a really cool kind of immigrant story and, and, you know, not judging a book by its cover, you know, or not being afraid of something different is a perfect story to tell with the Adams family because, uh, you know, at the heart, they're kind of like an aspirational family because behind the creepy closed door, they're a very loving, very together family. 
they all respect and give each other unconditional love and support each other, even though they're weird and freaky and creepy. The amazing thing was with the Adams family is that they didn't think they were weird or creepy, right? It was the no. great thing. <laughs> no, they thought they were completely normal. They, were, they thought the outside world was a little strange, but they were the ones who were accepting the outside world for what they were. No right. one would ever accept them for what they were. I thought that that was a good way in. And then as far as the look was concerned, character designer Craig Kalman and my production designer Patricia Atchison and my co-director Greg Tiernan, we sat down and decided to go back to Charles Adams' original cartoons for the look of the movie. Yeah, so. I noticed that. Out of almost every, like, it's, they've been through the TV show, two incarnations of animated series, two feature films, and Adam's Family Reunion back in 98 with Daryl Hannah and Tim Curry. But yeah, this is one of the first times that they really have that original Charles Adams look. Yeah, there was a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, I think, yes, in the 70s the, yeah. that did it. Wasn't very good at all. So Remember I they said, drove, their house was a car. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that was weird to me out. kind of like the Creepies <laughs> and the Flintstones. Yeah. You know, I, I said, well, you know, they might have gone back to the Charles Adams cartoon cartoons, but we're going to do it well. We're going to do it correctly. So, and I have to hand it to Patricia and Craig. I mean, they worked really closely together to really design the film to work these kind of 2D designs into a really three-dimensional, beautiful world. In directing the actors... How much of it was having them stick to kind of pre-existing character traits of the iconic characters that we know and love? Or were they kind of encouraged to give their own spin and bring something that hasn't been seen before with these characters? We really encouraged them to come up with something on their own. I mean, they most of them knew who the Adams family were. And those who didn't, they watched the TV show and they watched the movies and they, they got an idea of of who they were. But seeing this as this was an immigrant story, um, I really pushed them to come up with some sort of accent. And I gave them some ideas like Charlize and I talked about the mid-Atlantic 1940s Catherine yeah. Hepburn yeah, type I love of thing that. where you don't quite know where she's from. Oscar came in immediately with his uh, Latin accent and Bette Midler basically wanted direction on what I wanted. And I said, well, maybe she's like from some tiny little unknown country in Eastern Europe. She actually recorded two or three different accents for me and sent them to me and said, which one do you like? And then I got on the phone with her and told her which one. And she did a few more lines with me in that accent. And I said, that's perfect. Maybe you could try this. Maybe you could say this word like that. And she was like, okay. And she went off and, and invented it and then came back with the full accent. So, and then Nick came in, Nick Kroll came in and uh, didn't do an accent, but did a speech impediment instead. He got that Daffy Duck kind of thing right. <laughs> with Fester, which was great. We, we actually gave him direction to be like Barney Rubble in the very first Flintstones. It's not the Mel Blanc. Barney Rubble is the hey Fred you know that type yeah, of thing yeah 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 <laughs> and then he just added that lisp to it everyone came in with their take on the characters which was really cool what was great about this cast was we had our favorites but then we also had backups in case the favorites fell through but we got every single one Oh, which is kind of awesome. unheard of because I've never worked on a movie where we got our first choice on every role. So Charlize was always in mind. Um, Oscar was always in mind. Chloe and Nick I'd worked with on Sausage Party. I wanted him back on, on something I was working. I wanted to work with him again. So everyone signed on. And Bette Midler definitely was my first choice for Grandma. Did it give you also the flexibility to reapproach this new world and maybe designing some new characters and bringing some new elements of that into the Adams world? Yeah. What was great about we had this big thick tone of the Adams Family cartoons mm. from when they, you know, from all the Charles Adams stuff. And we just kept flipping through that in meetings and just like studying it and looking in the background and everything. There's all sorts of Easter eggs we put in there. We have the uh, extended Adams Family 
coming to visit, oh, you know, great. our Adams. <laughs> I would say out of the, I think maybe 15 to 20 characters that we created, I would say at least 15 to 18 of the 20 are right out of Charles Adams background characters. Oh, that's so that's cool. So, so there's like a character named Dr. Flambe. We gave him that name. It was a fester looking guy with little horns sticking out of his head that his, and his head would go up in flames. And we got that right out of a Charles Adams cartoon. They have on Pluto TV right now, they have an entire Adams Family channel. It's 24-7 Adams Family. I was watching it last night. No way! That's so cool. And there was um, Sister Ophelia, which is a Charles Adams character from his cartoons that we put in the movie. And then I found it in the TV show last night. What? Just a random episode? Yeah, it was played by Carolyn Jones as well, but she has a blonde wig on and daisies in her hair. We have that character in the movie. So everything that we did... We got right out of the old Charles Adams cartoons. And so there's like all sorts of like homages in the original cartoons as well. There was never thing. There yes. was never the hand. That was a TV show invention. Thing was actually this little shadowy character that he would hide in the background of all his cartoons, Charles Adams. So if you looked in the corners, you'd sometimes see this shadowy character with white eyes just kind of watching them from above. That was Thing in the original cartoon. So we actually renamed him What? And, <laughs> and in the movie, we have him in, hidden in the background That's in a bunch of different so scenes. So you can awesome. see if you can watch, look for those Easter eggs. Was there any influence from the 1990 movie, The Addams Family and Addams Family Values? I love those movies. <laughs> I love all Addams. I'm like obsessed with them. Yeah, we, we didn't want to take anything from the 90s movies. It's too recent sure. to actually yeah. redo. Everything that we took was either from the TV show or the mainly the old comics because I just think the the movies from the '90s are they're great. I love yeah. them. I think they're just too iconic to actually put something from that in our movie without looking like we're just doing a rehash of the Adams Family in animation. We didn't want it to come off like that. I wanted to just go over the stunning design and look of their house even and different things that you were saying you can put easter eggs and things and advantages that you probably have visiting this world through the lens of animation i will hand that to patricia our production designer as well because she actually heard we were doing this movie and took a couple of old charles adams cartoons and did 3d beautiful renderings of them like for instance there's a cartoon where morticia is sitting they don't have them anymore because you can walk around with your phone now but <laughs> they have these old chairs that have a little desk connected to the chair for the phone you know and it would have an ashtray and a little uh pad and paper and yeah. and you would sit there and you would talk on the it was specifically a chair made for talking on the phone and morticia had one with a cracked mirror above her patricia took that and basically did this beautiful painting that looked like a live action set of what that would look like. And we fell in love with it and said, that's the look of our movie right there. And so, you know, we instantly hired her and she just started doing these beautiful paintings of the house. And, you know, when you're dealing with Charles Adams sensibility, you don't go into the gross humor. You don't go into the gory, bloody. They weren't like that. It was just weird. It was like a little freaky, a little creepy, a little weird. You know, when we were doing the Adams house and we got into just filthy, it was just like, they're not filthy people. You know, they're not dirty. So I came up with this, I coined this phrase, uh, dilapidated elegance. Nice. <laughs> and so I think that really set her off on the, the right direction. And she just did these 
amazing paintings where, okay, there's a gorgeous chandelier, but it's got spider webs on it. But it, it's there and it's beautiful and it reflects light all over the place. And, you know, the wallpaper like you have in here, but it's really beautiful. But theirs is peeling off in the corners. Sure. It's got a couple of scratches from some beast that might have been there at some point, you know. So that's kind of the way we uh, we approached it. And what was really cool, I'm not a huge 3D fan in movies. I don't specifically go see 3D movies with the glasses and everything. When they decided to do this movie in 3D, we went to see it, check the shots out. Since we knew making the movie, we were going to be doing it in 3D. We specifically designed shots to make them, you know, look 3D. So when we went in to check the 3D, we found that the house looks absolutely incredible in 3D. <sighs> you feel like you're kind of nestled into the house with them. You can see into the rooms in the background because we really designed the hell out of this thing. It's awesome. We have like hundreds and hundreds of props that we designed and put into the background. Paintings of the family on the wall, I can hear, you know, all that kind of stuff is in this house. And when you see it in 3D, it's like you can walk into it. So I will say this is one of the few movies I've seen where 3D actually does enhance the experience. That's so fun. That's my favorite. Yeah, that's my favorite thing about 3D is that immersiveness, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why I was so excited when I heard this is coming out in 3D too, because for the first time you feel like you're living in the Adams family home. And that's just really, really cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see like a book of all these storyboards and paintings because I love art. And I think we're making a book. It is. It, it is coming great. out. I looked it up. It's coming out. I think I wrote it down October 22nd. That's some of my favorite stuff when you get to see a movie like this and then take home a book where you can look behind the camera lens and, and look at all the artwork and stuff that goes into this. That's yeah, amazing. It deserves a book. The artwork in this is really, really beautiful. In terms of creating that 3D world and, and working on that. So is that a process that is happening while they're doing the art design and everything of it? I don't know how they do it in VR or what, because obviously they're creating things to be enhanced in 3D. It's definitely a process that takes place after you okay. shoot but what you don't want to do is just shoot a regular movie and then just slap the 3d on because it kind of looks like a gimmick that's where the gimmicky cheesy this was that's the stuff i don't like this was a process done afterwards but if you're thinking about it while you're shooting it then you can actually use 3d to its advantage and you use it like you would any other element you would use it like you'd use color or sound or music to evoke an emotion from the audience. So, for instance, there's a character in the movie named Auntie Sloom, and she's the matriarch of the family, and she's very intimidating. And so when she first enters the Adams house, we have this, you know, the camera's low looking up at her. And as she approaches the camera, she kind of just booms over us as she's looking around judgmentally. And I told the 3D guy, I said, well, look, we did everything with the color, the sound, the music and the camera to make her seem imposing. Why don't you have her come out of the screen and push the background further back so that she literally comes out of the screen at us and looms over us in 3D? And they said, oh, OK, that's a great idea. We'll do that. So you can use it to your advantage, but you have to know that you're doing this in 3D. You can't just shoot it and then just say, okay, now make the background deep. Slap you know? the 3D filter on everything yeah, exactly. and see how it looks. <laughs> so this is going to be the first time that a lot of people are going to be exposed to the Adams Family world. Yeah. What is the secret to making a horror-themed movie that the whole family can enjoy? I think it's making sure that any, again, you don't want to scare the crap out of kids. I mean, look at me. I was in fourth grade and <laughs> got this <laughs> right. crap scared out of me and I, I, I wound up loving horror movies. So it's like, I think to a certain extent Kids are fascinated by the yeah. weird and the creepy. You know what I mean? You know, some don't like it, some do. It's like any other genre. But uh, I think making sure that anything weird or a little creepy 
always gets tempered with comedy. That is the key to this. I mean, there were a couple, you don't know the line until you find it. Right. You know, so there were some things that we just went over the line on, you know, um, as far as fear factor, as far as like, you know, suggestiveness and stuff like that. I always like making a PG 13 movie and taking a baby step back into PG. And that's the way I like it. Cause I, I still think kids like that more. They like something that's a little risque. And they definitely do. You know yeah. I mean? <laughs> they, and they want to know what their parents are laughing at. If they don't get it, it just creates conversation in the family. You know, mom, what they mean when they said that, you know, I think that's good. I never, when I was watching Warner brothers movies, I never knew who Clark Gable was. When I saw him walking down the street with his big floppy ears, I laughed. And, I, and then later on, you watch it and you go, oh, that's Clark Gable. That's the way I always approach this kind of stuff for kids. It's making sure that I laugh, that it's something I want to see on the screen. And then I, if it's a little too scary, I always temper it with uh, humor. Sure. I mean, that's what made me love Evil Dead too. The humor tempered the sheer terror of it all. I'm curious. We have four kids and I had the task of finding a animated movie for the class to watch and it had to be G. And so many animated movies were PG-13. I didn't even know they made G movies. (laughs) I'm just like, it's so hard to find it. I mean, they're usually boring, aren't they? (laughs) They were just like, I'm trying, I'm trying like everything. What is the difference between a G rating and a PG-13? Like Nightmare Before Christmas, PG-13. What? Was it PG-13? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Oh, wow. I've never made a G-rated animated feature. Huh. You know what's weird? David Lynch made a G-rated movie. (laughs) Really? Called Straight Story for Disney. And it is a beautiful movie. It's fantastic, but it's rated G. And that was crazy. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Out of all people, right? But it was like, everything is a PG now. Everything. In fact, I don't think you want a G rating. But what is it? Like, what is the difference between getting a G rating and a PG-13? Like, what is crossing the line? Anything. Even if it's like an action scene. For instance, if you take, I'm only thinking about the movies I've made, but it's easy to reference them, but the chase scene in the beginning of Madagascar 3, PG, because it's, it creates anxiety. Wow. Okay. okay. You know, there's anything that is going to, I think, (laughs) entertain a child is going to not be in a G rated. Yeah, that's right. I challenge anyone to make a G rated movie entertaining. The only thing I would probably have thought of was getting a G-rated film from when we were kids that would now be considered PG, yes. like Pippi Longstocking. I remember when they played Pippi Longstocking at our school. I was like in second or third grade and I loved it. It was like this little girl who could pick up horses yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. It was great. You know, it was really, really fun. It's uh, I might have gone back and looked for like 1970s or early 80s G-rated films that would now be considered PG because of the PC police and everything. So, oh, for sure. Like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and all that stuff yeah. too. And I mean, even the original Adams Family TV show, that was scandalous at the time because I think, wasn't it the first show that had the husband and wife actually kind of canoodling Being with each other? And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. How dare they? That was like yeah. a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. We actually had to take a lot of affection out of this. Wow. Because, really? Because people were just like, I don't know about that. You know. But that is Morticia and Right. Yeah. That's part of like, the th- relationship, the dynamic, right? That. They're yeah. always all I mean, over each other. they're still affectionate towards each other. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we insisted on having a little bit in there, but you know, we had them, you know, at one point kind of dipping down in the back seat to make out. And, yeah. But then we had them pop right back up. Right. So <laughs> it's not like anything was really going on. But it was like, oh, there were there were people in test screening audiences like, that were just like going, that was a little too risky. 
It's just like, boy, you know, I think kids need to learn that their parents actually are affectionate with each other. Yeah, it's important. My parents were. How long does it take a movie like this to make from beginning to end? This was a quick one. Really? This was actually a quick one, which I like. When I was at DreamWorks, from development all the way through to getting it on the screen could sometimes take four and a half years. Whoa! Sausage Party... (laughs) Well, Sausage Party took us four years to sell. (laughs) (laughs) Once we sold it and started making it, it was two, two and a half years. Right. And this one was a little over two years as well, from script to screen. And so that's that's a pretty accelerated schedule, but I like that better just because I want to be able to make more movies. I don't want to have two movies in 10 years. Talk a bit about the soundtrack of the movie. Obviously, the iconic Adams Family theme is such a big part of the legend of the Adams Family. Where did you decide to take it this time? How'd you change it? Since it was an immigrant story, the first thing I thought of was to have the music reflect kind of a gypsy feel. And I watched this film called Lacho Drum years ago, which is a brilliant documentary on all the different types of gypsies in Europe. They had Eastern European gypsies. They had Spanish gypsies. They had French gypsies, gypsies from how the gypsies were treated in World War II. They have Middle Eastern gypsies. And it's just all their their lifestyles and how they travel and their music. And the music is just beautiful. So I wanted to work with Michael and Jeff Dana. I'd met them through another friend of mine, Jess Weiss, who's also a composer. And she introduced me to them and I just loved what they did. They did Life of Pi and they're working on a new Pixar film now and they just really know what they're doing. So I told him what I had in mind for this. They leapt at it because when you go to Michael Dana's studio in Hollywood, he's done something similar to what you guys have done here. Oh, cool. He turned his whole studio into 1933 India. Wow, that's crazy. And, and had a set designer come over and paint panels and found old furniture from from the Bollywood era. It, it just looks like 1933, big, huge steam trunks that are turned into bars. And so he said, I love this gypsy idea you have. And his brother, Jeff, you know, he plays all these different types of guitars. Michael plays all these keyboards and everything. And so they get the chance to go in and create this kind of Adam's gypsy music and uh, you know the opening Adams Family theme they did it in three different types of gypsy musical forms so that's where we kind of got the score feel from and then our music supervisor Chris Doritas he came on board and hooked us up with a couple Tim and Antonina from a company they have called Rock Mafia they've worked with a ton of different artists Billie Eilish and, and Christina Aguilera and Lady Gaga and they wrote a couple songs for us and we put them in the movie and basically we were starting the movie with uh, I Put a Spell on You from Screaming Jay Hawkins and it just seemed like the perfect tone and the perfect type of um, you know love song that they would have so we gave this to Tim and Antonina and, and they came back with what is now online with that Christina Aguilera oh, sings. such a good track and I love it Haunted yeah, Heart yep yeah. And, they, and they came back that with <clears throat> Tim singing it and we had that in the movie for since the very very beginning and you know we were just like this has to be the opening of the movie and was making a decision or anything like that at the last minute they got Christina Aguilera to come on and sing it and she nailed it and it kind of sold the song to everybody <gasps> it sold the song to the studio and they said this is great we got to put it in and they quickly made a video for it and put it out and it's it's huge now so yeah. I mean it was so good and then they also did one based on the Adams Family theme for the end of the movie yeah, is that the one with like uh, that's the one with Snoop, Snoop and, and everybody on yeah it's yeah, super fun how hard is it to find a balance to make the movie entertaining for adults and for children. It's really trial and error with that stuff. You don't know the line until you reach it. So it's trial and error. We definitely were walking
walking this tightrope between introducing the Adams family to a new younger generation and also having to entertain the people who have been fans for years. We really did have to fight to keep in that adult stuff. The knee jerk reaction is it's a family film. It's got to be for six year olds. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you're just like going, yeah, but you can't just make it for that young audience. The six year olds will still go see it, but you have to entertain the parents too. They say it's a four quadrant audience. If you're only making the movie for one quadrant, you're not going to get that beloved four quadrant thing. You had, you know, with the Shrek movies, there's stuff in there. <laughs> Gingerbread Man says, eat me. You know, he says, dead broad off the table when Snow White comes in. You know, <laughs> there's like, there's stuff that, that is pretty edgy and that adults like. And that's, it's kind of my style to begin with. And that's why I wanted to work on the Woody Allen movie. That's why I loved, you know, working on Shrek. And that's why I wanted to make sure when I started this, I said, this has to be dark. It's got to be macabre. It's got to really stick with what Charles Adams created in the first place. So we really pushed hard to make sure that everybody was on board with not making this what I like to call an Easter egg basket. Right. <laughs> because most animated movies have that color palette. And I said, this has to have blood red and black and indigo blue, not azure or sky blue. Finding that balance in the look and the humor, you push that envelope as much as you can and then you pull it back a little. Conrad, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Congrats on the film. We can't wait to experience it. There's Adam's one family. little story oh, I'll, yes, I'll end please. up with. Yeah, please. And it's something one of our writers, Dan O'Keefe, told us. And it was really funny. It was a Charles Adams story. And he said back when Charles Adams needed a rest, he was going a little crazy in the head and he needed a rest from doing cartoons for The New Yorker. He had one cartoon in his drawer that he would just send in. And when they saw that cartoon, <laughs> they would go, okay, Chaz needs a rest. And the cartoon was, it was at a hospital and a nurse had a baby swaddled up in a blanket and Gomez was entering the room saying, oh, no need to wrap it up. I'll eat it here. <laughs> and when the New Yorker got that, they went, okay, he's going away for a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. my gosh. That's I so love funny. it. So no one ever saw that cartoon, but it's a pretty great story. We got to put it in the movie. In the sequel. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. Adam's family in theaters everywhere, October 11th. Thank you so much, Conrad. It's awesome. Thank you. It was great being awesome. here. Thanks, you guys. Thanks. I wish something would liven up this already tedious day. <laughs> Thanks for trying, Ichabod. Grab your popcorn, fright fiends. It's the Boo Crew all up in your program. This Halloween, make sure to check out the rest of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, including Creepy, a horror podcast dedicated to terrifying creepypastas, SCP Archives for weekly full cast productions of the most popular and horrifying stories from the SCP Foundation, and Horror Queers, featuring horror commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. Find us at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts. The Mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. The Blue Crew. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Haunted attractions, conventions, and experiences. Cuts. To the front of the line with local haunts. L.A.'s Natural Museum of History is the largest of its kind in the western U.S., covering the past 4.5 billion years. Its mission statement is to inspire wonder, discovery, and responsibility for our natural and cultural worlds. This fall, things are about to get spooky around there with their new exhibit, The Natural History of Horror. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio to tell us all about it are Beth Whirling, Collections Manager in the History Department, and Sarah Crawford, Senior Manager of Exhibition Design and Development. Thank you guys so much for being here. 
being here. Yeah. Thank you for Thank having you. Of course, of course. To begin, talk to us briefly just about the museum itself and what makes it a shining jewel, not only in L.A., but in the country. Well, what can you say? We're the best. <laughs> no, I think also what makes us so unique, not just for Los Angeles, but across the country, is that we combine both the sciences and history. We're L.A.'s history museum. We've been collecting for over a century now. So the treasures we have there that we love to share with the public are just amazing. We're about the second largest museum in the United States in terms of artifacts. And when it comes to our history collections, we're also the only museum that collects not only state and local history, but also national history west of the Mississippi River. So we've got it all. Well, we're so excited about the Natural History Horror Exhibit that will be making its debut this fall. Tell us a little bit about it and what people can expect to be a part of there. The reason we decided that we needed to do this exhibition is because of our unique collections. Because we have the history items and the natural history items, we figured this was a perfect exhibit to cover both topics. So we have some props from early universal horror movies. We thought, let's tell a story that's unique to our museum. So we came up with this idea, which is the scientific experiments and discoveries that inspired these famous movie monsters. There's so many people in Los Angeles that love horror movies and love these classic monsters, but this is kind of a unique twist that gets a little bit into their history that only we could tell at the Natural History Museum. What are some of the movies that are going to be covered in the exhibit and some of the items in particular that you're able to dig up? We are concentrating on four of the classic movie monsters, and they just all happen to be universal monsters, the best, you might say. Dracula, Frankenstein, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and The Mummy. We're tapping into our collection of props and images and ephemera, much of it donated by Universal in the 1930s when these films were originally shot. You'll be able to see the bat from Dracula. You'll be able to see bandages that were wrapped around Boris Karloff as the mummy, things from Frankenstein movies, so come on down. The cool thing is, I don't even know if any of this stuff has really been displayed before. bat on occasion. And we do a big business loaning these props out. As a matter of fact, most of our horror collection was on display in Germany about two years ago for a big exhibition there to commemorate Carl Lemley's birthday, the 150th anniversary of it. They've come back now. And that was also one of the, I think, impetuses behind this exhibit. It's like, gee, we have all this wonderful material in our collection. Why don't we show it ourselves? Yeah, people all over the world have been requesting this, Mm -hmm. but people in Los Angeles haven't seen it in a long time. So it's time to bring these home and show them to a local audience. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be an interactive portion of this as well. There's several interactive features. You know, as we dug into the stories a little bit behind the monsters, we realized that there was some natural ties. When we look at actually the origin of Frankenstein and Mary Shelley, She was really interested in the work of the scientist named Luigi Galvani, who was doing scientific experiments on frog legs. He was actually running electricity through severed frog legs and watching them move. He went on tour around Europe and his nephew kind of did the same kind of thing later Mm -hmm. where he was actually taking corpses around Europe and shooting them through electricity through the corpses and People thought that this was maybe a precursor to reanimating the dead. And Mary Shelley's introduction to her re-release of Frankenstein in the in the 1830s, she mentions galvanism as an experiment. So clearly this was like an inspiration for her. And then later, you know, that experiment sounds awfully familiar to one that, you know, viewers have seen in movies. 
and then single-handedly she kicked off pretty much the sci-fi horror yeah genre. yeah I mean, exactly it was pretty so. amazing so we have an interactive where you can actually like hit a button and make the frog leg twitch <laughs> oh, <that's awesome>. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah so it's fun so some of the interactives are about the movies and some are about the science so yeah. it's kind of a nice mix i'm curious about the science behind dracula all of these monsters have multiple origins you know so it's really hard to just drill into one so we looked more at the vampire legend mm-hmm. and disease as like different diseases when people in communities would fall ill, vampires got blamed. So we look at rabies, tuberculosis, cholera, all these different diseases where I think people just wanted some sort of explanation for this tragedy. So they blamed vampires frequently. And also, you don't think of this back then, but during the bubonic plague and other epidemics, there were a lot of bodies that were stacking up. People did not have the time to have funerals, to do single body burials. So they would dig these mass pits, put bodies in them. And when they would open these pits to add more bodies, they would a lot of times see decomposing bodies and they didn't understand the science behind decomposition. And they would frequently see kind of what looked to them to be bloody water coming from nostrils or the mouths and these bloated bodies. That was also mistaken frequently for the sign of vampirism. Does it coincide with the spider pavilion you guys are going to have opening in the fall as well? Yeah. They should be open at the same time. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. They're out in the open. They have giant webs. You just kind of walk through them. So I personally like it better than the butterfly pavilion. <laughs> it depends on the kids. Some kids love that. Some kids like the butterflies. There's also a chance that I've heard about where kids can do a sleepover mm-hmm. and attend mm-hmm. both the Spider Pavilion and check out some of the monster stuff. Can you tell us a bit about that? We do a lot of adult programming and kid programming. So I think you're going to have to be very brave if you're a young one. <laughs> <Right? laughs> Spiders and Dracula all in the same evening. But also a cool opportunity, you know, yeah. I mean, to be around these. And we're also going to be running a special program, Valentine's Day weekend. If you watch our website, there'll be some more details forthcoming about that. And we're doing uh, movie screenings of some of these as well. Mm-hmm. So there'll be definitely some events that coincide with natural history of horror that are specifically for movie fans. Personally, just having all these old artifacts in your museum, has anything creepy happened there at night or? The only time I've screamed at work, yes. I um, want to hear. <laughs> are you familiar with George Barrows and his gorilla? Yes. Okay, well, we have his gorilla costume. Oh, wow. And so we were having, I guess it was some kind of a publication shoot, or maybe it was a TV documentary, and we'd brought the head out. And we had the head on its mount on the table in the workroom. At the end of the day, the shooting ran, it was a shooting, it ran late. And everybody had left and I was still putting everything away. And I opened the door to the workroom and I guess there was just enough of a vacuum that the jaw to the gorilla went down and you saw the teeth of the... (laughs) So yes, I did let out a little scream. (laughs) But if you're talking about anything ghostly, I haven't hung out late enough to see that. But now I'm like, maybe I should. (laughs) Stay late just intentionally to keep an eye out. Might be a velociraptor ghost. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll let you know if I see it. <laughs> so what are the dates that this uh, exhibit will be running? This is running October 10th through the end of April. Okay. So I believe the f- closing date is, I think, April 17th, but through spring break. Oh, that's great. We want to make sure that all the kids from LAUSD can come out and take a final look at these props before they're put away. This might be the yeah. last time we show them for quite a while. Especially with Dracula's bat, because the fabric on the wings is becoming so brittle at well, this point. What does that, that mean out of? It is basically a wooden body with fur 
glued to the top. And then it's like coat wire hanger metal, a little bit thicker than that for the ribs of the wings. Over that is just very thin cotton fabric. Oh, wow. And then it has some real fur that we've been trying to identify mm-hmm. on the bat as well. And then we also have a real vampire bat that will be displayed in the mm-hmm. same case. So it's kind of fun to see the contrast. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the prop bat has kind of a goofy face. He's making it's kind so of a weird... It's <laughs> <laughs> sweet. Nobody has ever wanted to take a close-up, publish a close-up photo of the face because For good it's reason. very sweet. <laughs> right. Like a sweet little fox face. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> but you can also, if you look very carefully on the wooden body and the wings, you can see where their little like metal staples or hooks attached where they would have run the piano wire through. That's fascinating. Will you have any uh, creature props? We actually got some loans for this. So I don't know if you know Micheline Pitt, but she's big in this community as well, has designed some really lovely like monster skirts and clothing. So she actually has a creature mask pull from the original mold. The original costume doesn't survive as far as I know. If anyone on this podcast hears differently, please get in touch with us. But we've heard that the, you know, it just got brittle over time. And so she has a a great replica that we're going to have. And then she also had a full size model of the suit that we're going to include in the exhibition as well. So both of those items are on loan, but we just had to include the creature. It's such a great story. It has such strong ties to science. And we have, there's also multiple points of origin for that monster. But one of the sources of inspiration was this the coelacanth, which is like a fish that we thought was extinct, that we discovered was actually alive. And so it's kind of this missing link creature, very similar to like the creature right, story. Right. So mm-hmm. we have a beautiful, huge model of the coelacanth fish. And we also have one, a real one in the museum that you can see too. So some really cool science pieces as well. <laughs> yeah. as mm-hmm. I was curious if the name Millicent Patrick made it into... Oh, yes. it did. Oh, it did. Yeah, we talk about her in the mask label. We talk about her design. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and we have a photograph of her that we'll be including. Yeah. Oh, very cool. The whole thing with the creature from the Black Lagoon has been brought up on this podcast before. Out of all the universal monsters, it's one of the ones that could actually exist, right? There's only a small percentage that we've actually seen underneath Mm -hmm. the water as far as creatures and things like that goes. Who knows? Mm -hmm. It's true. And the coelacanth story really is kind of the creature from the Black Lagoon story. So if you're interested in learning more about kind of a real missing link that was discovered, come check out the exhibit. Is there anything that you guys love in particular? One item that is your favorite in the exhibit. Oh, that's like asking a parent <laughs> right? your favorite child. <laughs> or maybe one that was the hardest to locate. I personally do really love the bats. I mean, I love seeing the contrast between the vampire bat, the actual specimen, and then the prop, just to see kind of how amazing and talented the prop makers were and kind of also what they maybe got a little bit wrong. So it's just kind of a beautiful contrast. So yeah. I love that. I think one of my favorites, just from a design standpoint, is we have a vase from the mummy and they clearly based it on one in King Tut's tomb but rather than make an exact replica this was the 30s so they art decoed it so it's kind of a streamlined version of an alabaster vase from Tut's tomb so that's if I had to pick something I think just to look at for the sheer beauty that would be the one. What are your personal favorite horror films? I love The Shining so seeing that model was a treat. Yeah I think it was I mean I saw it when I was a kid I have no idea why my parents let me watch that movie but I think that's kind of what got me hooked on are you, horror Are you movie. looking forward to the sequel this November? I mean I'm always a little bit nervous about sequels because I love the original so much yeah. you know but of course I'll go see, I'll watch it. I'll <laughs> so. well, Mike Flanagan's directing you're yeah. in good hands. Yeah you are in yeah. good hands yeah. <laughs> that's There's true. nothing he's done that I haven't loved. And how about you? I think I'd have to say the first horror film I saw it was uh, the original silent version of Nosferatu. Oh yes. And a friend of mine said let's go I thought it was a silent movie or it was 
was a, or is a silent movie. But looking at it, I thought, okay, this will be just like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, not much to be, nothing in there that's going to frighten me. Scared me, just disturbed <laughs> oh, me on a deep level to the point I wouldn't see it again for many years. And mm-hmm. finally, a couple of years ago, I watched it again, just as disturbing to me as when I was a child. So yeah. the, there's still power to that film, oh, that's so, great. at least as far as I'm concerned. So so when you guys lend stuff out, is there a point where you will say, I'm going to stop lending it out because it's so deteriorating? Because that's what we're finding with like our stuff <laughs> when we take it to conventions, like things are breaking. And do you think there'll be a point where you'll say, you know what, we're not going to lend these out anymore and just keep them safe? Yes. As a matter of fact, the bat has reached that point now. Okay. When it came back from Germany, we noticed that it's getting the fabric a lot more brittle. You can tell if you hold or as you have yeah. undoubtedly worked with an artifact or just handled it, you can tell when there's a difference to it. And we could tell that difference at the end of that particular loan. So that's why it's going to be so special seeing it in this exhibit. Mm-hmm. But there are also some pieces we have that are just too fragile, period, to travel. And one of them is we have a wax head of Lon Chaney that was cast from life that he practiced his hair pieces and some of his makeup on. And so so that one is just too fragile. There's no way you can safely pack it. We get nervous even transporting it within the building. And then there are also just some materials that don't hold up well, like plastic. Some of the new materials, I don't know over time how they'll age. They're doing a lot of testing, but plastics are turning out to be a curse rather than a blessing, certainly for museum collections. Mm, Anything made of plastic is a problem. And rubber. So like the creature mask. That's mm-hmm. why it doesn't, you know, the original probably doesn't exist. Yeah. Just wow. disappeared after it's <laughs> deteriorated in dust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was wondering, seeing as, as horror is so big today and it's going through this, this great renaissance, you know, and there's these there's a horror movie almost every week now in theaters. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, is there any I, uh, thoughts on expanding this exhibit going beyond the universal classics in the future? Maybe going through a horror cinema in general, the history of and, and you know, expanding this. Yeah. And I think first it was happenstance that we selected for universal creatures for this first exhibit. And some of that was based on our own collection as far as the strength of our collection being these classic horror films. But as far as taking the exhibit further, we are interested in exploring that possibility. We can't commit to it yet but i mean this is the first time we've done something like this i think that's Mm -hmm. maybe why it's getting a little bit of attention beth and i are both horror movie fans so it's good Mm -hmm. for people at the museum to see how well this is doing and how much support this is getting within los angeles because we'll see what happens in the future we're excited to explore possibilities and it's also been a wonderful opportunity working with our scientific colleagues on a joint project like this So I think even within the museum staff, there's been excitement about this particular exhibition. Yeah, I keep thinking about creature design and the inspiration for a lot of the creatures coming from natural history. You know, if you look Mm -hmm. at especially some of the sea creatures, they're just gorgeous and really creepy. So maybe it would be more of a sci-fi bent. You know, there's some different kind of ways we could take it. All right, Beth and Sarah, thank you so much for hanging with us. And if you're listening to this at time of release, a natural history of horror exhibit is happening this fall at the LA Museum of Natural History from October 10th to April 12th. Go learn something while getting absolutely terrified. Thank you guys. Yeah, it's awesome. (laughs) 
That was a Boo Crew Podcast, Episode 73. Special thanks to our guests, Conrad Vernon, Beth Whirling, and Sarah Crawford. If you're listening to this at time of release, check out the Natural History of Horror exhibit running from October 10th until April 19th at LA's Natural History Museum and the Adams Family Animated Movie in theaters everywhere October 11th. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tahada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.